sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. Religious freedom is in transition, along with pretty much everything else. And so, as we start the new year, we're taking a look back and a look forward with a series of guests to assess religious freedom in the Trump administration and also what we have to look forward to with the Biden administration. Our guest today, my good friend Timothy Golden, professor of philosophy and director of the pre-law program at Walla Walla University. Tim, welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friend. Thank you, Alan. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be with you. So, on a scale of one to ten, I'm going to ask you this way. Trump administration, his policies and practices with respect to religious freedom, ten being, you know, really great, one being really awful. Where do you see the score coming down? I probably see the score coming down at about a at about a one point five. <laughs> <laughs> at about a one point okay. five. So my guests have been mixed. Some, you know, supportive and some critical or you know, what have you. Everybody has a little different perspective. Um, so, you know, in terms of, I guess I should focus, since you're so critical of his approach to religious freedom, why is that? What is it that you're seeing that maybe some others have missed? So what I'm seeing that bothers me most, Alan, is I grade him so low, principally because of the Supreme Court nomination process and what has gone on there. I think with the nomination of Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and now Justice Barrett, what we have seen is a radical return to Supreme Court nominations that are driven almost purely by ideology. If you study some of the recent Supreme Court justices who have either passed away or retired, and you look at their confirmation votes in the Senate, what you see is an overwhelming level of bipartisan support, right? Here I'm thinking of Justice Ruth Ginsburg, who is a supposed liberal justice and conservative. She was confirmed 963. Then on the other side, I'm thinking of Justice Scalia, who by all accounts is a conservative hero and a conservative ideologue to many, and yet he was confirmed 98 to zero. I wonder if we will ever get back to the days where the Senate has a threshold of 67 votes for confirmation to the Supreme Court. I think all this business of Supreme Court packing, etc., questions about whether Congress should ex expand the number of justices, should they reduce the appointment time to a term of years rather than life, I think all of those discussions are unnecessary if we can get back to a bipartisan level of support in the Senate for a Supreme Court nominee. Because the way things are structured now is you just need a brute majority. And whether it's Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, or now Justice Barrett, you're appointing justices to the court who you can basically strong arm through the process and who we're not really sure, despite their best intentions, I'm sure they try not to be, but I think nominations will be a lot less controversial 
if the president knew that he had to get 67 votes in the Senate. Sure. And I think that's what bothers me most. And the reason why it bothers me is because over the summer, there was a, a cases out of California and Nevada that were decided on almost identical facts to the case that was decided last week out of New York when the archdiocese challenged Governor Cuomo's restrictions. And the only thing that changed between the California and Nevada cases and the case last week was the court's personnel. That was it. I mean, I'd imagine if, if Justice Ginsburg... You're talking about cases involving COVID restrictions on churches. And yeah, in cases involving religious freedom. So all those things together, right, sort of caused me to downgrade the president on religious liberty because I'm concerned that in that area of constitutional law, like in the many other areas, what we're going to see is more of a commitment to ideology and less of a commitment to balanced views that actually attempt to adjudicate cases fairly and vindicate constitutional rights. Okay, so I'm not going to let you off the hook here because you're talking about ideology and our listeners are probably asking what kind of ideology is he concerned about? Is it Christian nationalism, something like that? There's going to be favoritism for a particular type of religion rather than for the rights of all people equally? Yeah, so that's good. My concern is that the type of religious freedom we're going to get from the Supreme Court will conceive of free exercise of religion not so much as a shield in the hands of minority religions, which I think is its purpose, but more so in terms of a sword in the hands of people who happen to be involved in religions that are more majoritarian or more popular. Mm -hmm. And so we can talk in theory about the free exercise of religion, but these ideological commitments to a certain Christian worldview that I think color the justices' perceptions of the Trump nominees' perceptions of what religious freedom is, are really what concern me, because we ought to be thinking of religious freedom as something that protects us, not as something that we wield and say to other people, I have a right to do whatever I want, you have to get out of my way. Mm -hmm. And it's that latter interpretation that I think is so problematic. Well, what about in terms of, you know, favoring majority religion, I'm thinking about the court's record and the conservative justice's record when it comes to the various phases of the Muslim ban, which were struck down initially, but then ultimately approved by the conservative court, right? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. So if you want to sing the praises of the Trump administration for what they did last week, if you're going to be consistent with that, you ought to be singing the blues about the Muslim ban cases, as you just mentioned them. So this is where I think a lot of people, when they think about religious freedom, we tend to see religious freedom from our own very narrow perspective. And when it is or is not inclusive of other people, uh, whether or not we support it in those circumstances often depends on whether or not it will benefit us. And I'm not so sure the moral calculus of that determination is the right approach to religious freedom cases. So let's come back to the court's approach on the COVID restrictions on churches. Um, 
Certainly, conservative Christian leaders are cheering the court standing up for the First Amendment rights of churches. You seem to have favored the court's earlier approach, which was kind of keeping their hands off of the government efforts to to keep people safe in a pandemic, right? Yeah, so that's right, Alan. I think that last week's decision out of New York really is tantamount to an advisory opinion. I think that the case was moved. Chief Justice Roberts pointed that out in his dissent, that the case was essentially moved because the restrictions, and this is what the governor of New York argued, the restrictions no longer applied to the churches in that case. So if they don't apply to churches in that case, then the issue is non-justiciable. It's, this is Con Law 101, right? You know that the Supreme Court, as a non-policy-making body, does not issue advisory opinions. And I think that what we got last week from the Supreme Court was essentially an opinion in a case that was moved that was basically an advisory opinion that said, you better not do this in the future or else. Well, and in the meanwhile, we're going to prevent you from doing anything. Okay, but Justice Gorsuch has been quoted for, you know, coming out forcefully and saying, you know, the First Amendment still applies even in a pandemic and and upholding, you know, the First Amendment. And pastors and churches are very happy to see some support at the court. But you're not convinced. Why not? Well, I'm not convinced because I think even under a strict scrutiny standard, I think the state has a compelling enough interest in the protection of the the life of its citizens, considering the nature of this pandemic, that justifies reasonable restrictions from the state on church and church attendance. The old argument that, well, I mean, this argument, this is the kind of thing that has a great rhetorical flourish, but it doesn't really pan out on closer examination. People say things like, well, you know, you open a liquor store, but you don't open a church. Well, when people go into the liquor store, they're not going in there for three hours to sing and hug and and listen to preaching and have up close talking or perhaps share a potluck meal. They're going in to make a purchase. They're required to wear a mask and then they're leaving. Right. So I just think that at a very basic level, there are things that we are overlooking because we cherish the right to religious freedom, which we should. But I think what bothers me isn't only that, you know, very basic level of comparison between, say, the liquor store and the the church, but is also the overwhelming sense of inconsistency that I get from the justices who are considered to be conservative, who, when it comes to religious freedom, don't want any government intrusion at all. But for 30 plus years, as the Fourth Amendment was eviscerated, they wrote opinions that justified all sorts of governmental intrusions and eroded the probable cause requirement of the Fourth Amendment and the search warrant requirement of the Fourth Amendment. And it just makes me wonder, why is it that we seem to pick and choose what liberties matter most to us and the rhetoric of the war on drugs? seems to justify all manner of intrusion in the lives of persons in the name of a public health crisis and public safety. But yet when those same public safety concerns affect religious freedom, we are not 
as quick to uphold them. And that inconsistency I find quite troubling. You know, that's a parallel that I have not heard before. And I think it's a really important one. You know, I share your concern. Um, I believe that the churches that are pressing to reopen are ignoring the golden rule, that they are all too willing to sacrifice the health and safety, not just of their own parishioners, but the community, and that many of them are in rebellion against God. And the court now is squarely encouraging that kind of rebellion. But I think it's important, as you said, to put this in context with the fact that, you know, in terms of the comparison with the war on drugs, yeah, there are fatalities in the war on drugs. It's surely true. But I don't know that the fatalities are 250,000 to 300,000 people in a single year dying because of drug addiction, and certainly not in terms of marijuana. Maybe in, you know, heroin obviously is much more dangerous. Crack cocaine is, is you know, more potentially deadly. But um, you're right. The erosions of other constitutional rights, Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment rights, uh, because of the health and safety needs and all for the war on drugs, uh, you don't hear conservatives complaining about that. But now when it comes to the First Amendment or the Second Amendment, um, you know, that's where they're absolutist. No, the government has no right to take away our guns or to tell us we have to curtail gathering in churches because people are dying. So there's going to be a lot of disagreements about some of these issues. They're very, very hot topics. But I really appreciate, Tim, your being with us today on Freedom's Ring. We are out of time. Our guest today, Tim Golden, professor of philosophy at Walla Walla University. And as we close, friends, this has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, keep freedom ringing. Freedom ringing.